Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I am here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are attorneys with NFP Benefits Compliance, and we bring to you on this podcast various topics that uh, relate to benefits compliance and to our clients who generally have um, group health plans. And today, we're going to talk about remote workers because that seems like that is continuing and certainly going on much longer than anticipated. And there are definitely some compliance issues that relate to remote workers as it as it applies to things like leave and benefits compliance. And today we are going to try to tackle some of the state paid family and medical leave protections and a little bit about notices as well. So give us a little bit of background, Chase. Yeah, it's a big issue now as it has been for the past five months. And it looks like down the road, uh, this could continue to be an issue. Employees working remotely, right? It could be by mandate. The city or state is not allowing the office to reopen. Or it could be by choice. Maybe the city or state is okay with the office being open, but the employer is sticking with the remote work situation by preference. So we've seen several of the bigger companies uh, recently say they're maintaining work from home arrangements through the end of 2020, some even until summer of 2021, and maybe even some that have said that they are just going to do it indefinitely in the future. So employers and employees are going to have these compliance issues at the top of their radars for at least the foreseeable future. And there's lots to consider when it comes to compliance for remote workers. I mean, we are an example of that. Our office has opened, been many of our offices that opened, but only have limited staff that are in the offices. And we both actually uh, typically work in Austin. You have left Texas and are now working in Park City, Utah. I remain in Austin, but both of us are working uh, remotely from our office. And so um, we know that employers are dealing with uh, this issue all over. But let's start off with the state paid leave. It seems to be such a hot issue, especially up in the Northeast, where several states have um, have adopted these types of leaves. So let's start off with that one. States have these types of leave laws that are out there. New York and Massachusetts, California seem to be the biggest examples, the typical states where they regulate a lot. Uh, but there are other states across the country. Those would include New Jersey, D.C., Connecticut, Rhode Island, Oregon, uh, really are the ones with the paid family and medical leave laws. The laws obviously vary from state to state on exactly what they cover, but most allow the employee to take time off and to get paid to take the time off uh, to care for a newborn or a newly adopted child or for a dependent that has a serious health condition or to manage family affairs when a family member is out on an active duty in the armed forces. So those laws are really there to kind of expand on the federal FMLA and to help employees in these types of situations to be able to step away from work and handle you know, the family affair and then get some level of payment to be able to do so. A quick note, I always highlight this with the state paid family and medical leave, they often include protections for employees to step away and care for a domestic partner. And so employers that may have previously sort of exited that discussion on domestic partners because they don't wanna offer domestic partner benefit or health plan coverage. And in most states, you're not required to offer that coverage to domestic partners, but employers do have to step back in and, and consider domestic partners and domestic partnership when it comes to these paid family and medical leave laws. So that's an important point that I like to highlight. 
what what does this have to do with remote workers? Bring us bring us to that topic. Yeah, keep us focused, Suzanne. I appreciate it. The state law protections for family medical leave in most states really are based on where the employee works. So that gets confusing. A lot of employers and a lot of employees think it's where you live. Uh, but for the most part, it's where you work. Uh, for example, New York has its New York paid family leave or PFL law, which actually tracks closely with its mandated disability law, which is DBL. But both New York PFL and DBL base eligibility on where the employee works. So if an employer is based outside of New York, but the employee works remotely in New York or for an office in New York, then that employee is entitled to New York PFL protections. In the same vein, if an employer is based in New York, but the employee actually works in Connecticut, the employee is not entitled to New York PFL. And that would be true even if the employee actually lives in New York and commutes out to Connecticut. So that employee in that example may be entitled to Connecticut paid family leave because they're working in Connecticut. But you can see these sorts of webs of state law that employers have to deal with. It's getting very complicated for multi-state employers and more states are getting in the game with respect to paid family leave. So the horizon looks even more complicated. So, I mean, any times that there's complications, we obviously look to the state to help provide guidance. And New York is generally very prolific in the writing about guidance. And so I'm always um, happy to use their writings, at least uh, you know, in the insurance context. But in this context, have they provided any help for the employers out there? Yeah, so New York has been surprisingly quiet. We haven't seen anything from them yet on this issue of whether New York PFL would apply to, you know, an employee temporarily working remotely from their home in New York. New York has been very active on putting out guidance. Generally speaking, they've expanded their uh, paid family leave to account for COVID-19. Uh, specifically, they're allowing employees to take additional paid family leave when they're unable to work. Uh, because of a mandatory or precautionary order of quarantine that's imposed on the employee or on the employee's minor child in connection with COVID-19. And they've put out a lot of guidance on that, but they have not addressed this uh, issue. New York has been a, a, a hotspot, right? As the original U.S. hotspot. Of course, now the tables have turned a little bit. New York is looking at it and saying, those traveling back to New York from other U.S. hotspots are ineligible for that leave. Uh, so the tables have turned a little bit, but in any event, New York has not published any additional guidance on this, uh, how New York PFL applies to remote workers in this heavy work from home reality we're in now. So we'll continue to monitor that, but for now, we don't, we don't know more for New York. Yeah, that is unusual because you think of New York as really being an area where it would, it, you know, it would apply very easily to have uh, workers leaving New York in order to go to other states that are closely connected. Um, and I know Texas right now, you speak of where the hot spots were in the hot spot here right now. Right. So take on that title. Um, but so what about any other states besides New York? Yeah. So the reason I wanted to talk about this today is first, because it's an interesting issue, you know, everybody working remotely and how the state laws apply, but Massachusetts actually has published some guidance now on their paid family medical leave or PFML law. Quickly to help explain that, under Massachusetts PFML, uh, most workers in Massachusetts uh, will be eligible beginning in 2021 to get up to 12 weeks of paid family leave and up to 20 weeks of paid medical leave. So this is one that's not yet available to employees, but it's coming up because the program is actually funded by premiums paid partially by employees. 
And the contributions or the withholdings that employers are taking from employees as contributions actually began back in October of 2019. And so employers are struggling with the employee contributions and which employees are they going to be withholding these PFML contributions from. Um, so in response to that struggle, the Massachusetts government published some guidance to help with remote workers. I mentioned before, this is, gets back to this idea that uh, entitlement and therefore withholdings for employees is based on working location. And so if you have employees coming in and out of Massachusetts temporarily working remotely, it's that same issue. And so the first one, the first part of the guidance talks about temporary telecommuters working within Massachusetts. So normally I work in a different state. Now I'm uh, telecommuting from my home in Massachusetts. And the guidance basically says until the end of 2020 or 90 days after the Massachusetts state of emergency ends, the earlier of those two dates, uh, the presence of one or more employees temporarily working remotely in Massachusetts will not trigger any state tax consequences. So in other words, just because they're temporarily working in Massachusetts does not make them Massachusetts PFML uh, employees from which uh, deductions need to be made. So um, the remote work, it does say, has to come in response to a COVID-19 governmental order, an individual quarantine or isolation instruction or diagnosis or exposure, or an employer policy adopted to comply with federal or state government guidance or public health recommendations. So you can see a little bit of wiggle room there. What is this really the reason I'm working in Massachusetts remotely because of an employer policy that's um, meant to comply with a federal or state governmental order or recommendation? Right. That's that seems quite broad. I mean, it, and it certainly seems like it, it allows the employer to document, but there has to be something out there that they are relying upon that's external to the employer. So while the while the policy is internal, they're having to rely at least on that last one with a federal or state guidance or public health recommendation. So that's a recommendation that's external to the employer that they must be able to point to uh, for the basis of their policy. So they definitely need to do some documentation on this one. Yeah, so we'll come back to employer documentation. But basically what they're saying is, like, if you were treating this employee as not a Massachusetts employee previously, at least until the end of 2020 or 90 days after the Massachusetts state of emergency ends, continue to treat them as if they're not. And the same is, uh, the guidance goes on to say the same is true in the reverse scenario, which would be an employee who previously was working inside of Massachusetts, but now is temporarily uh, telecommuting outside of Massachusetts. Uh, basically, the guidance says keep subjecting them to these PFML and other state employment taxes. Okay, this seems a bit complex, but I, I'm sure that uh, with additional guidance and our employers will be able to work through this. But what else should the employers be considering? I mean, is there anything else in the guidance that, that's helpful for these employers? Yeah, you touched on it briefly, Suzanne, but just the idea of uh, documentation, um, including employers that really have no presence in Massachusetts, but may have employees that are temporarily working from home in Massachusetts, really that idea of documenting the need for the temporary arrangement. So one example is an employer should probably retain copies of its remote work policy to help demonstrate that the temporary tax guidance applies to employees working remotely in Massachusetts. And then if the remote work situation continues beyond the end of 2020 or beyond 
that 90 days after the end of the state of the emergency in Massachusetts, those businesses have to register with the state and begin collecting PFML contributions. As this guidance says, if you kind of stay beyond that time frame, we're going to start treating these employees as having that nexus with Massachusetts where we're going to start requiring you to uh, withhold employment taxes. So really, it gets back to more tricks and annoyances for the employer. Uh, that that reference in the Massachusetts guidance to the end of the state of emergency in Massachusetts, we don't know that date, but it's very similar to the DOL extensions that were announced a few months ago relating to COBRA notices and elections and COBRA premium payments. Right. The extensions for HIPAA special enrollment rights uh, and notices from employees that have really been expanded. Those are based on uh, the so-called outbreak period, which we've talked about in the past, but it's it, that outbreak period is tied to the end of the national emergency as declared by the White House. So it really creates all sorts of uncertainty as to how long it will last. That's in the federal world with the White House national emergency declaration. The Massachusetts guidance is tied back to the state declaration of emergency uh, but it just creates new complexities and uncertainties for uh, Massachusetts employers. Oh, I mean, uncertainty, I think, is the word of the year. Uh, it, it really is difficult both for employers to plan and, and, and develop policies and procedures related to their employees. And it's difficult for the employees to really kind of um, understand what they're going, what's going to be expected of them in the future. So it's just all around kind of difficult for everyone. But you started to answer the question that I was thinking is what about any other states? As we mentioned, New York and Massachusetts, has any other state given any kind of guidance on this issue? No, it's a little bit surprising. We haven't heard more, up, up, you know, five months into this now, uh, but no other states that we're aware of have published guidance on this particular issue. Hopefully more states will move on this particularly as it becomes clear that the remote work situation is extending beyond just the normal temporary status, or at least what we thought was temporary in the past. It's going to go on for a while. So these issues become more prevalent, gets harder for employers to rely on the so-called temporary exemptions from a lot of these rules. So we'll see. Uh, obviously, it doesn't look like this is going to be a temporary issue. So we just hope more states will jump in and provide some of, this, some, some of this guidance. At least Massachusetts is trying, even if they're tying it to a date that's maybe a little bit unknown and uncertain, at least they're putting something out. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw kind of a broad question at you, but I'm just really looking for something that's really of a hot issue now or, or things that you're hearing from our clients now, but as it relates to remote workers, what other you know, big considerations are there right now for employers and benefits compliance? Yeah, there are plenty of issues, but one that we've been hearing more about has to do with distribution of plan-related notices to a remote workforce. And on this, I think it helps to break it down into two types of notice requirements. You have the poster requirements. These are like the common break room posters, like your FMLA and USERA notices that you sit around the water cooler and stare at in the break room if you were in the office. And then you have your regular specific notice requirements, like an SPD or the exchange notice that really relate to the plan and have to be sent to each individual employee. But starting with the poster requirements, again, normally those are just posted or hung in, in a common area, such as the break room, uh, where employees can see. Uh, there has been no further direct guidance on how these notices should be handled when it comes to this newer situation of remote work. Some employers are posting these notices on their website, like on an intranet, where employees might spend time uh, looking for internal items. We have workplace 
discussion groups uh, within our company, maybe on something like that. Uh, but some employers are going an extra step and emailing the posters to employees or sending them out by mail. Um, there's not usually a specific distribution direct to employee type of requirement with the posters, so it's not actually required to email those posters out, but it could be a best practice to do something like that, especially for a new hire, right? They may never have been in the office to see the original posters. But if it's a specific notice that has to go to a new hire, again, this is like an SPD or an exchange notice, some of the state ones like New York PFL or DBL notices, something similar like that, we do recommend continuing to distribute those directly to the employees via email or regular mail. Regular mail is always gonna be okay. You can always trust the US Post to get it there, or at least the DOL says we can trust them. So regular mail is always fine. Email is much easier, and that's the way most employers wanna go. It's okay to send emails with these notices if the employee has email as a regular part of their job. Uh, so, for example, if they have work email, um, if they're on the computer a lot, they have that access to electronics, that's fine. But if the employee doesn't have a work email or other electronic access as part of their job, the employer has to go another step further and get approval or, or authorization from the employee to send the notice via email. So that would be like through a Gmail account or something similar to that. Most remote workers are going to have electronic access. They're plugged in. They're working online but some that could continue working remote, uh, but might not have access to electronic, maybe like a landscaper, a golf course worker, those types of employees that might still be working during the pandemic because they can socially distance their, distance their outside, but maybe they have less interaction with the main office as they otherwise would. There may be that additional step that the employer should take to make sure those employees uh, give authorization through an email. So those are the general considerations. We, we do get a lot of questions about the internet. Can we just chuck these notices out on the internet and uh, say that we're satisfying our direct to email distribution requirement? If the employer wants to post the notices on the internet, it's okay, but they still need to take a step to send an email letting the employee know where it's located. They also have to say what that it's in an important plan related notice and that the employee has the right to a paper copy and how to request that paper copy. So there's a few extra steps to throw into that email, but intranet could potentially be a solution uh, for posting those if the employer takes those additional steps. So there's some general rules when it comes to best practices on communicating with remote employees, at least with respect to the notices relating to the plan. So, it, I mean, it seems like remote workers are just providing a plethora of questions and complexities as it relates to employers and, and uh, you know, benefits compliance, especially. So I'm sure that we will we'll be returning to the idea of remote work and we'll find some other things to talk about um, that's providing some challenges for the employers. But uh, thank you, Chase. We appreciate you tackling this issue. And as we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.